Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode nine of the Whiskey Philosopher. Um, I appreciate you, as always, downloading this. We've done something a little bit different because I know you're used to hearing the music right right as you uh, start the the Whiskey Philosopher uh, on your on your whatever it is, your phone, your computer, your device of choice. Um, we've done something a little bit different this week, and I want to preface it. Um, we had a uh, a guest named Kirk Whitner on who was absolutely fantastic, and the interview went a little bit long. And so rather than uh, putting out you know, an hour and 45-minute um, podcast, we've decided to make this a two-part podcast. So what you're about to listen to is part one of two. Unfortunately, because of the way we do these things, we'll only taste one whiskey in episode 9 slash now episode 10 as well. So you're about to hear Kirk's story. It's a great story. I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, you will hear the whiskey tasting in this episode, but for next week's episode in episode 10, uh, we will not have a, a whiskey tasting. Um, and so I just wanted to warn you all of that and uh, give you an idea that episode 9 will be the first half of our Kirk Whitner interview. Episode 10 will be the second half of our Kirk Whitner interview which will come next week. Thanks again for listening. Really appreciate it. But I like that bottle better than the rest. And she said, You're listening to The Whiskey Philosopher with Jeff Cooper on the Ignotainment Media Network. Undistilled thoughts, blended opinions on the rocks. Please listen responsibly. If you take your whiskey... Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode nine of the Whiskey Philosopher. Um, I want to thank you all again for all of the downloads and the comments and the emails we continue to receive. Uh, I really do read every one of them. I appreciate every one of them, and I really appreciate the time that you're taking to download this and and listen. Um, I hope you enjoyed the last episode we did with Chef Ed Heath, uh, the James Beard Award nominee and restaurateur extraordinaire here in uh, in the St. Louis metro area. We've had a lot of great feedback on that show, and uh, again, I really appreciate it. If you are listening and have not yet sent feedback or sent us a comment or anything, uh, feel free to do so. You can send me an email, jeff at thewhiskeyphilosopher.com, whiskey spelled with an E, W-H-I-S-K-E-Y, philosopher.com, or you can leave podcasts, or excuse me, leave comments on the podcast stores, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher. Feel free to do it. We love to read them. Um, as you all know, on this podcast, I, I, I try to do two things every week. The first is we love to try to taste a good whiskey and report back on it. So you guys have got uh, got something to go to the go to the store and, and seek. And the second thing we try to do is talk to an interesting guest um, and explore how different philosophies on life and the different things that happen to us in life affect us every day. Um, the first piece of that is uh, our whiskey, which today is Ravenswood Rye Whiskey uh, from Journeyman Distillery, which is from, in all places, Michigan. Uh, we'll come back to this for a taste later on. Um, seems to be an interesting, very, very small batch, uh, boutique, actually organic uh, whiskey. So um, we'll come back to that. My guest this week is a, is a good friend of mine. Uh, his name's Kirk Whitner. And Kirk has had a hell of a few years, uh, tough years, really, that tested him professionally and personally, emotionally and philosophically. It tested his faith in our legal system, tested his faith in his family, his faith in his beliefs, and most of all, test his faith in himself. 
Um, Kirk's a lawyer in St. Louis. He comes from a family of lawyers. His family is one of the most well-respected legal families in the entire region. Kirk followed his father's footsteps into the family firm and as of a few years ago was really busy putting his stamp on the old firm and, and working alongside his father. Life was going as expected and life was great. Then in 2010, that world was irreparably altered when Kirk's father was indicted by the U.S. attorney in an alleged criminal conspiracy case. On that day, Kirk's life changed, really changed forever, I think we'll hear, uh, and his fight for his father and his family's legacy began. Uh, and so we're going to talk about how that affected him, how he handled it, and what he did. Kirk, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> uh, I'm excited to be here. You had mentioned this when we were uh, having lunch together, and it sounded like a really neat opportunity to talk about this experience. And so happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it's 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 something that I followed, uh, you know, alongside as as everything you've been doing all throughout these years. And before we before we really jump into how it affected you and everything else, let's 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 hit the underlying facts. Um, let's talk about what what your father was charged with, and you know how it, how it, the the underlying facts, how it all came about in the first place. Sure, uh, my father is still uh, he was a fifty year practicing attorney. He had uh, really, as far as accomplishments go, he had tried cases in the Supreme Court of the United States all the way down to where he acted as a uh, 17-year prosecutor for a local municipality in the St. Louis area. Uh, he had a longtime client who was engaged in the insurance business, and over the years of serving that client uh, and, and, and doing a very good job, in fact, he, he tried a case against uh, Jay Nixon when he was the Attorney General. Uh, he prevailed in that case against Jay Nixon, which was this 80-20 rule, uh, and that gets into some insurance issues. But the, the gist of it is, as a background, my dad had this very good client, uh, the client who uh, was involved in things that he would not have seen or would not have been aware of, and this is a scary kind of scenario for anyone out there doing business. And my father was ultimately charged with something called 1033. That's not going to mean anything to most people out there. Uh, 1033 is a insurance, federal insurance statute that says that if you allow a person who has a felony conviction to engage in the business of, of insurance, you too are guilty of a crime. And so ultimately, uh, my father pled to violating Rule 1033. And he was sentenced to 36 months for that violation in a federal prison. So basically, the, the underlying facts are this. 50-year lawyer, 50-year-plus lawyer, not one bar complaint, former, in 50 years, by the way, not one bar complaint by any client ever, uh, prolific attorney, great trial lawyer, prosecutor, et cetera, sits on, sits on one board of directors, is really a virtually inactive board member, although attends a meeting once a year, et cetera, um, happens to be on, on that board with some other bad guys who, in separate uh, businesses, separate everything, get get charged with crimes, and all of a sudden he's pulled into a conspiracy case. And that's an accurate depiction. Uh, it's interesting because my father was former military. Uh, he has served his country in every sense of the word. He lost his father when he was a teenager and had to accelerate through his schooling. He's been sort of the iconic figure of a family man married to my mother his entire life, 
Uh, all of our siblings reside here in St. Louis because family has always been a priority. So he's lived an exemplary life, not a single bar complaint. He's always been on the right side of the law. And here he is all of a sudden tangled up in this mess that he never could have seen nor would have anticipated coming. So this is this is 2010. How old is your father at that time? My father in 2010 would have been roughly 73. Okay, so 73 years old, 50 years of bar, or 50 years of being a lawyer. It's just not, been honored by the Missouri Bar for 50-plus years of excellence. It's, it's amazing. So that's got to be one of those moments, number one, that's just in, unbelievably unexpected, but, you know, number two, because of that, comes as one of the bigger shocks, if not the biggest shock of your life. When you heard, I would like to hear the story of, of do you remember that moment? How did you hear, and what was your what was your, what was the first thing that crossed your mind? I do remember. In fact, I was with a, a friend of mine, uh, working alongside my father. I was very intimate in terms of knowing the facts that were going on with the feds and their investigation of my father's client. Uh, I was away in Colorado when I got a phone call and I was told that there were problems. I wasn't given details. And upon returning home, I was told that my father was once a subject, and there is a distinction in the federal world, but now that he he was a target. And uh, my cousin is Scott Rosenblum. That may be a name to some of the listeners out there. He's a, a known or prominent criminal defense attorney. By all accounts, when we learned that my father had moved from a subject to a target, it was as if the writing was on the wall. It was, you can't stop the train, you're in trouble. That was the sense of urgency. And and, and the fear of it sunk in almost immediately, not because I had any understanding, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but the weight that people were giving to this notion of being labeled a target of this investigation it was prominent people that we had, we knew in the city of St. Louis that were, their advice was almost alarming. Go get the very best criminal defense attorneys you can find in the country, because if the feds want you, they're going to get you, period. End of story. Unbelievable. And and so your reaction at the time, when you, what was the first thought that crossed your mind when you learned at that moment? I think that any life experience that is so dramatic, it, it has a tendency to put you back in your chair, almost you kind of feel the room spin on you a little bit. Uh, anyone who's been diagnosed with something, I, I make that statement because I, I speak with uh, my own experience in that area too, human experience of being diagnosed with something serious and dealing with that. But you have an overwhelming sense of of helplessness. My father was adamant about not pleading to any of the other major charges that were part of the $500 million fraud, that being uh, bank fraud, mail fraud, money laundering, uh, wire fraud, conspiracy. And the government, as I made a statement, they're not magnanimous. They don't do any favors. If they believed that they had him on these, Believe me, they would have charged him and made him plead to him. He told his lawyers, along with the family, that absolutely he would not do it. The one thing he and his mind could accept, and Jeff asked an interesting question in that, uh, when he asked and he said about, 
going before in this decision to, to accept the plea deal. The feds, they, they, they leverage themselves as follows. Mr. Whitner, okay, we agree. You're not a part of this other, the, the big dirty act, but you're going to plead to something. We've prosecuted this case and so you can either go to trial and we're going to hit you with all 55 counts or you can plead to these three counts because it's almost in, a, in effect, we can't be wrong. And so my father at the end, after all the negotiations and a lot of family roundtables, we said, Dad, take the deal. Let us, I, I, I was confident and I said, let me see what I can do on the other side of this. I want my father back. That's it. That's the critical aspect to this. I can go lobby a fight. You, you're a guy who's now 75 or so at this juncture, 76. You have half a heart. He had suffered several heart attacks during the course of his life. He literally was functioning with half a heart. So I thought my background being medical malpractice, let me take the fight up for you. On the other side, we made a, an informed decision. And by the way, just to demonstrate that our decision was the right decision. A fellow by the name of Dave Wolf, I won't name his attorney, uh, gave the advice to his client who was the investor for the same family. His client was the only of the, all the named defendants from the original indictment and the superseding indictment to go out to trial. His name's Dave Wolf. He went to trial, they did a five week trial and he is, although considered a low-level player, he's now serving 10 years. Yeah. It's amazing. So so your father decides to plead guilty. Um, and, and if I can real quick, just yep. one, one quick one statement to that. The hardest thing I've ever watched, and I apologize, maybe I'm, I'm jumping ahead here. The hardest thing to ever watch is to watch an innocent man go before a court, look at a judge after this honored truly an, an honorable life and look at a judge when the judge asks you that question in a federal courtroom Mr. Whitner you understand these charges that have been brought against you and you understand the ramifications and that you're pleading guilty to this thing called 1033 that the prosecutors themselves hadn't even heard of uh, to me and for my father I can tell you is the single most hurtful thing that are beyond words. If, if, if you work your whole life to obtain a certain level of respect in your profession to make it an art form, not the lawyers that are coming out today. Lawyers that are coming out today, they, they, everyone specializes and, and they, you know, they say, I'm, I do this work or I do that. My father hails from a different generation where a handshake meant something and trained in so many areas. He had his tax court license. Like I said, he was in the Supreme Court of the United States. He was part of the Million Dollar Advocacy Club. This is a man that when asked to plead guilty in his heart of hearts, he knew. In essence, he had to perjure himself to go before a judge and say, I'm guilty. Mm -hmm. And I think that no one will understand that. Those prosecutors, this kid that prosecuted him, I call him a kid. Uh, I'm not going to use his name, but, but this prosecutor who was a, who's an up-and-comer who really, I think, 
embodies the worst because he's not there to uphold that oath that is on the side of the federal building in downtown St. Louis. But I think he's a, a climber and he saw an opportunity. He had a lazy supervisor and I think he took a shot at it. And I don't think he cared what was being destroyed or who he was destroying. And that's my personal feeling. I, I and I believe that in my heart of hearts today. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the facts don't matter. I got a conviction. That's it. Right? And, and, and a win is a win in that, in that world where you have political aspirations, where you want to be recognized in a department where it can be cutthroat. Uh, this was what this individual's game was all about. And, and it became clear because they do these interviews, these 302s. And, and why I say that is if you match the 302 statements that were being taken by the original prosecutor who, by the way, quit and went into private practice, and then this individual who ultimately took over, the scope of the questions changed. They were now all of a sudden, instead of open-ended questions like we as lawyers will do if we're just doing an interview, as opposed to an examination. Uh, Mr. Cooper, isn't it true that you exactly. did this? Exactly. Now all of a sudden you've insinuated the answer, and, and you can see that take place in his examinations. So Absolutely. it's a shame. He, I think my father was a victim of a lot of things, the perfect storm of sorts. No, there's no question about it. And so post-guilty plea, you went through sentencing, at the end of the day, sentenced to 36 months in prison, and that's really where the second half of the story starts. But before we get there... Let's do something I think we're both sorely in need of at this <laughs> point, which is a which is a, a, a taste of whiskey. Um, and so the whiskey that Kirk and I are tasting today is Ravenswood Rye Whiskey from Journeyman Distillery in Three Oaks, Michigan. Um, this is an organic, extremely small bit, small batch uh, whiskey from an up-and-coming distillery. Um, and so, Kirk, cheers to all the work that you guys have done. Thank Thanks for coming Jeff. in. Thank you for Taste having this. me. Let me know your thoughts. That That's is very smooth. It really is. It is a it's a fantastic rye. Um, for the you know some people like rye, some people don't like rye whiskey. I happen to be on the pro rye side. Um, it's got some real like vanilla sugar taste. It's a it's kind of a sweeter, really nice rye. I would uh, emphasize, I, I've been a Scotch person for uh, really a big fan, and I've, I've traveled over to Scotland, and I've done some tastings. Uh, but this is a has a really, really, can't emphasize, a smooth finish to it. Yeah. Very nice. It is, and what's interesting about it is it's, it's young. You know, they, they talk about when you read about this Ravenswood uh, rye online, they talk about it being, you know, very young and it's aged in small barrels, et cetera. For that, it's got a great finish. You know, nine, nine times out of ten, you get a really young whiskey and it, it goes away quickly. Um, but, yeah, it's really good. I, I highly recommend it. Ravenswood Rye Whiskey, Journeyman Distillery from Three Oaks, Michigan, uh, of all places. So if you can find that in your local store, enjoy it. We certainly are today. Very uh, good. We'll continue the, continue the saga. Um so tell me about the process of, um, of sentencing and then actually going to prison. I mean, you know, again, from where this started and where it got to that day, you know, the unthinkable 
at the end of the day had actually occurred. And um, and it's because of the weight of the system. It's because of all the other things. So explain that process a little bit and, and then, you know, what that was like for you and your family. The unthinkable is the correct word. Uh, you can't imagine... There are so many sayings about walking in another man's shoes and to deliver, number one, the sentencing was a something you had to behold. The courtroom was packed. If you've been in a federal courtroom, they're, they're, they're large. They can be intimidating for us lawyers that practice normally in, in state court and circuit court. These are big courtrooms that can hold, in this case, or probably, I don't want to overestimate, but it was standing room only. The majority of the people seated uh, with some press in the back standing, probably 300 plus in the room. And this judge, Gene Hamilton, had decided to take all the defendants on that day and hand down the sentencing uh, on one day as opposed to sometimes they'll break it up. Now I've sat for jury verdicts and waited. I know what that feels like. Uh, that can be nerve-wracking, but there's a high to it as a lawyer. If you enjoy litigation, you live for that moment, you, you try the case, you put on the right case, and you know you, you feel confident. This is just a sentencing, so you, you're past all that. There is no waiting for a jury. This judge is going to come out, and she's going to hand down your sentence. And as they went through each person, there, there was these different reactions. But when it came time for my father, it was surreal. And I, I won't find a better word for that, except to say that in the moment, Number one, Judge Gene Hamilton, whose senior status had the wrong sentence to the wrong defendants. <laughs> now, that should be an embarrassment oh for God. the federal system. If you feel the stress that you're feeling and the judge doesn't even read the right sentence to the right defendant, that's a whole other kind of fiasco, but I'll leave that for those to deal with down there in that building. For my father, when he stood up before the, the judge and he was there and he had made his acceptance of his participation in this to the extent of this thing called 1033. Uh, his lawyer in an impromptu fashion delivered a very, very overwhelming kind of heartfelt to the whole room. It wasn't even to the judge. It was something you would have to have been in there and, and, and had experienced firsthand and, and he said, in this room, if I can see a show of hands, who's here for Howard Whitner? And if I can tell you, Jeff, in something I've never seen in as many courtrooms as I've been around, the whole room raised their hands. I mean, uh, put aside the media and the other co-defendants, everyone in the room raised their hand. In fact, he then said, will you stand? And those who were seated all stood up. There were tears. The defense attorneys for the other defendants in the case were in tears, literally. And he said, this is a man who has taught, who has touched everyone in this room in some fashion or another. And I would ask the court to consider in, their, in handing down whatever their judgment or whatever their sentence is going to be, 
what this man has given to his community and to his family. And I think she got it. I, I, I think she got it to the extent that she was willing to. She, she was probably going to give him five years and gave him three years right mm-hmm. there on the spot. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of anger because I think that she had a better duty to look at this case. The guidelines, the federal guidelines that are challenged all over the United States, Families Against Mandatory Minimums is an organization you can look at. Uh, there's a big push that these judges wanted to be able to take back control of their cases and not be held to the federal guidelines, which are these strict hardline deadlines that say, if you fall over this category, you do X number of years and we as a judge don't get to put in the human aspect. Judge Hamilton had the opportunity to do it and she failed. That's my humble opinion. Others may differ. If you're in the federal system and you're the prosecutor, you probably say, well, hey, three years, 76 years old, you got a hell of a deal. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's perspective. But I can tell you that the courtroom drama, that moment when she read that three year sentence, my father stood there again. I'm going to use the word the same one I used previously to describe him stoic. Mm hmm. He stood there strong. I think he wanted to give strength to the family. And and although he wasn't being in some fashion where you see a guy literally shackled and taken off, that was not the case here by agreement between the prosecutors and the judge. But nothing that I've ever experienced in my life will rise to that level of that intensity, that moment of waiting and hearing what the judge was going to do. And, of course, as we found out, it was 36 months. So on that day that he was sentenced and, you know, due to due to his age and his poor health that you've talked about earlier, you it really started part two of your quest, which was then uh, to get him released. So he leaves that day and goes, where'd you start? What was what was step one for you in, in the in the quest of Kirk Whitner to to basically free your father at the end of the day? I think that I have to make one statement first, and, and this is critical. I think that every prosecutor, every judge, state, or federal needs to take the time and go look at where they are sending these people. We aren't rehabilitation. We are retribution. And if anyone believes in the United States that that's not correct, you'd be sadly mistaken. We are retribution. We are not doing anything to help these people in the way of reform. That's my own little statement. And, and, and I, for anyone who might hear this, I hope that comes true because there'd be a big change in how we approach just sending people away into prison. I have a big feeling about nonviolent offenders and, and those people. But I want to come back to the question that, that you asked. and, and Help me, Jeff. I I, I got yeah, so off where'd, track. Where'd you start? So he he goes away. You're you're on the you're on the quest to free your father at this point. Where do you start? I I had to. At first, it was overwhelming. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I hadn't even like you said the shock of driving him to Lexington, Kentucky, which is where he was being confined in a federal medical facility, folks. This is a bona fide death camp. Mm-hmm. 
They call it a medical facility. Make no mistake about it, the United States of America, I don't care what anyone will say, I don't care what retribution or what comeback there may be, we are running in open sight death camps. Mm -hmm. It is a sin. I would not have known about it. I have affirmative duty for my life to be involved. I mentioned earlier the Olive Institute to make a difference. This is pathetic. We treat these people lower than we treat animals. What you take to the Humane Society or what we take to our vet are better treated than what these inmates are. And I know the attitude, the prevailing attitude is, well, you broke the law, you get what you get, and that's it. That is not the truth, ladies and gentlemen. We need to pay a lot of, you got to pay attention to what's going on. This is very serious. So when I drove my father with the family down to Lexington, here's the imagery. I think it'll make sense because many people will identify. If you saw Shawshank Redemption and you saw those big stone building that looked antiquated and old and filthy, that's where I was taking my father, a man of 70 plus years with half a heart. So appreciate the intensity of it. He walked in, we dropped him off at receiving. It's like you're dropping a package off. And there we he walked off, he gave us a wave, and there it was, was the last I would see of my dad now. I mean, I went up weekly to see my father. And my goal, I'm a medical malpractice defense attorney. I defend doctors around the country. My goal was, what could I use applying what I understand to be the standard of care in medicine and what I was going to hold the government to in terms of providing the adequate care of a heart patient, in this case, a guy who had had multiple heart attacks. And so his life expectancy was basically zero. And what you need to know is the feds made a point that they wouldn't put in his plea agreement that they anticipated that he wouldn't live within one year of his sentence. They wouldn't do it because they were afraid the judge would show leniency and they might give him home confinement. So again, the feds played their game to the fullest, didn't care, and it didn't even matter if it was going to execute this guy. In other words, you get a 36-month sentence, ladies and gentlemen, but in a man of 76 years, 77, you give him three years, that might as well be a death sentence. It's no, not I, the same. I will never forget the conversation that you and I had at that time. So this is not revisionist history. This is not, boy, we were, we were scared, but we really weren't. I'll never forget the conversation you and I had at that time when you said flat out, my dad's going to die in jail. I mean, yes. it was, it was, it was, you know, just sort of shocking and touching, and and um, and I know that, that was the that was the cause of your of your quest to to free him. And, and so here's a question that I have for you because there's we've talked a lot about the system. Obviously, the the penal the the, the justice system now the penal system as we've gone through. So. At, from from this point, and this is the this is a shorter in time journey than than the case was, but was it literally you? And I mean you, meaning you, your family, everybody was supporting you. You against the system, or were there were there certain people inside the federal penitentiary system, the federal penal system, that were that were actually helpful, or was it just you against five million bureaucrats who didn't give a shit? <laughs> the bureaucrats. Um, I describe myself as a as a guy standing outside a a, a a massive 
fortress and I was throwing pebbles at it every day. That's <laughs> how I envisioned my, my quest. I was told by people time and time again, forget it. It's an impossibility. No, no, no. Don't mess with the feds. Don't get involved. But when you love and you, and you love unconditionally, and I can say this about my feeling about my family, my father, my wife, um, when you have that passion, and again, I think you see the brilliance in people in that regard, every day, no matter what I had to do, I started the morning with the same routine. Phone calls, who would listen? Who would pay attention to this travesty? And I would whittle away and I would keep my notebook. I had a separate notebook labeled my father and I would keep notes. And anyone I talked to, no matter what it was, there were notes made, numbers recorded, statements they made, anything I could do to track back in to try and make connections. And in doing it, I, I have to say that probably all my efforts having a legal background, understanding the, the medical malpractice world, standard of care, yes, in some way played a role in this, but here's the big issue or the big thing. My father nearly died a month into prison, found, passed out on the floor, rushed to the University of Kentucky. Now, I get a phone call only because I'd made allies through my constant badgering and phone calls with the warden and with the doctor that was on call there at the facility. I had not heard from him. I'd set up a, a process by which I told my father that no matter who you contact in the family, because he had a limited way of, of contacting, he only had 15 minutes, one phone call a day. At his age and his health, our worry was not a day could go by without hearing from him. Whoever in the family received the phone call had a duty to pass it on to the entire family that we had heard from him. Mm -hmm. That way we could put our minds at rest. This instance, a day went, we didn't hear from him. Uh, I got a phone call from a doctor within the facility. She broke protocol. She might have gotten in trouble for it. She wasn't supposed to do it. I know that's the case because I spoke to another person within the prison. And the fact is she called me personally and said, I like you, I like your father. I don't know why he's here. He was taken to the University of Kentucky. He's not good. I got in the car amidst a snowstorm with my mother and my sister, and we drove to Lexington, Kentucky. It's a five hour car ride roughly from St. Louis. We drove through, we literally, we slid off the road. I, no exaggeration. I mean, one of the worst storms that you could have. We were the only car on the road. Thankfully, we slid off the embankment. We got back on the road. We get all the way to Lexington. We get to the hospital where we find out that he's under an alias and they have no record and they're not trying to keep it from me, but they have no record of him being there. I do, through connections, I made several phone calls Ultimately, they identified where he was in, in, in the hospital at the University of Kentucky. And there I went and <laughs> walking into the room, there's a 77-year-old man, half a heart, shackled at waist and ankles to the bed with two guards in the room. I would ask you the necessity 
for having two guards that we as taxpayers pay to put a 77-year-old and shackle them to the bed <laughs> with half a heart. But that's for everyone else in the system to evaluate and the reasonableness of that and what we pay for. And I said to my father when he walked in, he was literally blown away. Um, I, I, his look, his shock, I, he couldn't believe that we walked in. The guards had a look of, of shock. They wanted to know, what are you doing here? How did you get in here? Right. They literally wanted to know. I said there will be a letter coming over the fax machine momentarily. Probably one of the few things that went right. And lo and behold, here comes our permission slips from the facility saying these people have a right to be here. The guards told us that in 20 plus years, at least one of them that was on duty that night, uh, he had never seen this before. He'd never in as much, never known anyone to get in. I think it was people listening, my constant pressure, badgering. I figured if I were enough of a nuisance, I'm never going to beat the system. But if I'm bad enough, if I'm just enough of an annoyance, they're going to pay attention to me. And I think that's where that was the first crack in the chink. I sat with my father. He had lost eight units of blood. Oh. He was on his deathbed when I arrived. Uh, that was that speaks to the kind of care he was getting at the uh, facility. And there, because of my training and my experience, I started monitoring everything that was happening every day. I was making notes. I didn't leave his bedside for 12 days. He did come back around, thank God. Uh, I say that. Uh, I do have a, a, a belief in faith. And so I, I there was a miracle there because that opened the door right there. That was the first chink in the armor. They did the worst thing they could do. They let a medical malpractice attorney inside <laughs> their, their facility that they didn't anticipate, nor could they. And I was able to do a lot of damage because for the first time, someone was getting an inside look to the way this whole federal system is set up and yeah. what they do. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely amazing. And it's it, it goes to a couple of things. It goes to the 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 benefit of being a good guy the benefit of being associated with another good guy who happens to be the inmate at that time and then really the overwhelming benefit of just being a pain in the ass <laughs> right i mean can't, can't say enough uh, perseverance ladies and gentlemen is is a uh, for any of you who have a dream whether it be to your own goals or or if it's for a loved one whatever it is you can't say enough about going out and fighting. No, and and I know Jeff can speak to it. So oh, there's no doubt. Uh, I mean, when, when it, when it's anybody you care about, whether it's your, whether it's your father or anybody else, you know, the lesson I think the, and, and the lesson that I take from you through this whole story is you just don't take no for an answer. You just keep going back. Even when the system is overwhelmingly stacked against you, the deck is, every, everything is stacked against you. You can't get information, to your point. I mean, you, you can't even find your father at a hospital and you know that he's had a heart attack and is is in intensive care. You know, there's it's it it has to be the 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 overwhelming feeling of powerlessness. I can't even I cannot imagine what you were going through. Um, you know, you've got your mom with you, your sister with you on that trip, but for all of the phone calls you were talking about, everything else, it's gotta be really, really um almost impossible 
to not give up every day. And you do. Um, every day was uh, colored by this range of emotions. And, and my wife is here in the room, and she would support me in, in so many ways. Uh, you, you, you have to somehow internalize it and, and, and put it in some type of perspective and then stay at it because, and there's, there's more to it, but as you focus and you keep driving, you keep driving, what, you, what you're hoping for is, where am I going to run into that person who will listen? That one person who isn't, by the way, jaded by the system or colored by the system, who's going to say, I want to listen to your human side of the story. If, if, if I was failed by the, the U.S. Attorney's Office and Judge Hamilton and others along the way, could I find them on this side of it in the Federal Bureau of Prisons and the people that were made up of that department in Washington, D.C.? And I had to find a way to chip away to get someone, and I could tell in my note-taking, who was receptive to a true story that needed to be told. And when I encountered it, you could almost feel it. There was like an instantaneous connection. The guards that were on duty in my father's hospital room for those 12, 14 days that, by the way, you, the taxpayers, paid for every day, mm -hmm. and I can tell you they don't skimp on that bill, uh, the government paying the University of Kentucky, there were guards that, that didn't understand. They, they would listen and I would tell them, I would say, this man here raised a family and he's got six grandchildren and he's lived an honorable life and he's guilty of 1033. And they'd look at me bizarre. I mean, they had seen murderers and on and I mean, rapists and things that were, that really invoke what you think are the type of inmates that belong in prison. Now here's a guy you say, honorable life, served in the military, army, uh, you know, left as an officer, did everything right, and he's in. He, he did what? And yeah. I, 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 it was hard for me to even convey that. But there was this. Some of these guards were really sympathetic. They, they got it, and and they understood when we were there as a family. They had never even seen. Sadly, for so many inmates, I, I will throw this. The federal system has nowhere to put these people, and when they go home and they, they do look to try and put people out, get them out, get them home, they have nowhere to put them. Yeah. There's family members that don't want them. And so when they go and do their investigation at the home or, the, or wherever they're returning, what they find out is we can't. it's worse than the prison where mm -hmm. we're putting you. So, you know, we've set up a structured free health care system in our prison system, which is better than, unfortunately, and these get into bigger, wider social issues, uh, are better than what these people are going to get when they're back in their home community. Yeah. But for a guy like my father, when there's a family, particularly in light of what he pled to, we're ready, willing, and able to take care of them. Let us incur the burden. We don't want the taxpayers to pay for it. We will take care of him. Please bring him home to us before he expires. Okay, guys. Well, you heard the first half of Kirk Whitner, and I really appreciate it. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as I did during the interview uh, at this point. 
Um, again, uh, I remind you to tune in next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, please subscribe and uh, come back and listen to the second half of Kirk's interview, which will be coming up next week as episode 10. Again, really appreciate you listening. You're listening to The Whiskey Philosopher with Jeff Cooper on the Ignotainment Media Network. Visit us at www.ignotainment.com.